BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello and welcome to Kermod and Mayo's film review on BBC Radio 5 Live. It's our best of 2018 show, featuring all our highlights and outstanding moments from the year. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll be back. Hang on, we've got two hours to film. OK, which is a fair point. Did you have uh, anything exciting for Christmas, by the way, Mark? Uh, yes, uh, some ties. So a happy Christmas then. Thank you. Uh, coming up, some of Mark's most memorable... I had a nice Christmas too, by the oh, way. Oh, sorry, you want me to ask? No, Simon, no, no. did you have a nice Christmas? Yes, Did you thanks. get anything memorable? No, not particularly. A selection of beers and fine wines and peanuts. <laughs> coming up, some of Mark's most memorable reviews, such as... Black Klansman, Phantom Thread, Black Panther and Venom. Plus, some of Simon's toppermost interviews with guests, including... Jamie Lee Curtis, Lupita Nyong'o, Saoirse Ronan, Amanda Seyfried... And Pierce Brosnan. But let's start with Mark's review of Black Klansman. There's never been a black cop in this city. We think you might be the man to open things up around here. Hello? This is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God, last time I checked, God bless white America. It's closer to the truth than you would think. And I think actually the inventions, the dramatic inventions are perfectly justified and actually work rather well again, because as I said, it is a film which is about dualities, about, you know, two different characters and two different personalities and two different types of films, a film which has humour in it and a film which has horror in it. Frankly, I thought it was um, Spike Lee's best work since, you know, Four Little Girls, that incredibly harrowing documentary. It has something of the stylistic slickness of 25th Hour, which I liked and was always underrated. It has something of the controversial potential of Bamboozled, which was a film that really hit people uh, the wrong way. The performances are really good. Um, I mean, really, really great central performances. That's a central coupling of Adam Driver and John David Washington, really, really good as the two sides of this central character. And um, it has great period detail because it is really important to say that although the film has a really urgent contemporary edge it is about issues that are really really relevant right now it is also a very accomplished evocation of uh, a bygone era it's not just to do with the production design and the the choice of jukebox soundtrack which melds rather brilliantly with a score which goes into sort of, you know, guitar and drums from thriller strings. It sort of sounds like it's, you know, very much on the cusp of that from, from, a, from a thriller movie into something that's almost sort of going into, you know, Superfly or Shaft or that sort of thing. But also it, it has the, the feel and the grain of films from around that period. I did an onstage with um, Spike Lee and he was talking about Serpico French Connection, um, Dog Day Afternoon. And it's shot on 35mm, some 16mm in there as well. And it, it long lenses, long takes. So the film feels of a piece. So when it's evoking that period, you can feel it in the texture of the film. It feel, you know, It's like a film that was made in that period, as well as being a film which is, as I said, urgently contemporary. It is, in many places, remarkably funny. And if you see the trailer, I mean, the trailer really sort of plays up the, the kind of comic shock element of it. And it is really funny and also really my response was really horrifying there are things in it that are really really horrifying and also things that are that are that are very moving i really liked it that was really good
waited for this night. He's waited for me. I've waited for him. Get out! Go home! Get inside! It's the Halloween hustle. I'm doing the Halloween hustle. The hustle, you know, uh, that I <laughs> refer to as the Halloween hustle is, you know, I'm on a promotional tour, and one day when I was in Los Angeles and I was going kind of from thing to thing, I started going like, do, 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 the hustle. Right, exactly. And so then the Halloween hustle just sort of, and, you know, when I'm bored, you should see me down a hall. I'm doing the curling arm thing and the whole thing. enjoying doing the Halloween hustle? You know, I am, and I am for one reason. Because the movie's amazing. You know, I have done the hustle for everything I've ever done. It's what we do. We're all, by the way, every person in this room's on the hustle. They're doing their job, we're doing what we do. There are a few moments where you actually do the hustle for something you really love. And this movie is everything we had hoped it would be. It is terrifying. It is funny. It's emotional. And it's a great movie, even and above it being a horror movie. And in that sense, I am thrilled to be hustling. What is it that persuaded you to get on board again? You know, it's funny. It's not really a persuasion, which was a great book. I was minding my own business Honestly, on a bit of a vacay with my husband, we were playing golf. And I got a phone call from Jake Gyllenhaal, who is my godson and a good friend. And he had worked with David Gordon Green on the beautiful movie Stronger, the true story of Jeff Bauman, the man who lost his legs in the Boston bombing. And Jake said he had a very good experience creatively with David. And David was going to do a Halloween movie and wanted to talk to me. And so you know, we spoke, David and I, and then he sent me the script. And I said yes, virtually immediately. When you got the call, did you think, really, we're doing that again? Or did you think, I really hope that works? Or I just wonder what your gut instinct was. Were you thinking, okay, were you, I'm up for this? I realized just by doing math, which I was never good at, that we're kissing the 40th anniversary. So I was like, oh, right, 40 years. Wow. I really didn't know what it was going to be. And that's, you know, he tried to pitch it. He tried to explain it to me. And I said, you know what, David, just send it to me. I will read it. If I like it, I'll do it. If I don't, I won't. It's that easy. Let's not BS each other here. I don't need to spend a lot of time with you telling me what you're going to do. Isn't there a line in the original movie where she says, let's stop talking about it and get down doing it? Well, in a weird way, that's how I am as an artist. I'm just sort of like not a big talker. I like to get down and do it. I like to get into the process. And I read the script, and here's what got me. The original script, even though the movie opens in this terrifying sequence in a mental institution with Michael where we meet where he's been all these years, the original script that I read had my granddaughter, played by Andy Matichik, running as a jogger, through Haddonfield. So you got all the tree-lined streets, small town USA, welcome to Haddonfield sign, she runs past. And then at some point she ran into the house, she ran upstairs, opened her louvered 
closet I'm door. I'm getting a little bit nervous now. And pulled the bare bulb in her closet to illuminate her clothing. And in that second, when I read that script, I went, oh, that's beautiful. We're back in the closet 40 years later, but it's my granddaughter. And I thought, that's gorgeous way to open a movie. Like right away, 40 years have gone, and I knew where we were. Thank you for the music, the songs I'm singing. Thanks for all the joy they're bringing. Pierce Brosnan and Amanda Seyfried are here drinking coffee. How are you? Well, very good, Simon. Good day. <laughs> very nice to see you, Pierce. Very nice to see you, Amanda. Are you happy with the coffee? I'm really happy with it, yeah. Yes, okay. Can we get you anything else, Pierce? My okay. spaghetti bolognese, I'd like that. A spaghetti spag. bolognese. Spag bog. Have bog. some spag bog, love. Here you go. Not a spag bog. Didn't know about that. Did you not know about spaggy bog? No, but spaggy I bog. really would also <laughs> care for some spaggy bob as well. Was it always a sequel that was going to happen? I mean, the, the, the first movie was so huge. At one stage, it was the highest grossing film in UK cinema history. Hmm. The critics weren't interested, but as far as the public <laughs> were concerned, yes. they absolutely matters, loved it. Yes. So that was just a question, presumably, of logistics, of getting everybody back together. I think it was a story, too. How do you tell the story? Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't. Everybody would ask over the years, and I'd be like, I don't think so. Hmm. But then mm. Ole came up with something kind of amazing. But it was Richard Curtis, actually. It was Richard Curtis's Oh, his daughter. daughter. Oh, Scarlett was like... What about this? Why don't we go back in time? Yeah. And cut two and two together. And then Richard and Ole took that. And we're like, you're a genius. And then Richard and Ole kind of went away for a week or so up in the country and came back with that. That's it. That was it. it it Scarlett Curtis. Yeah, Yeah. Scarlett Curtis. He said, why don't you do a Godfather 2? No. That was it. That was was her quote to her dad driving in the car (laughs) to work one day. And so it sprang out of that idea. Flashback, flashback. Because with the title "Here We Go Again," it was just—it was made. It was waiting to happen. Wasn't it was waiting for a story uh, to come in there. Absolutely. Just back on the first film, was there a moment where it dawned on you that it was going to be huge? What, I mean, or were you just having a ball of thinking, "Who knows what's going to happen to this?" Because you know, Greatest Showman came out. The critics hated it. Um, the audience absolutely love it, and it's been you know one of the highest-grossing films of the year. And is it the same? It was the same kind of thing for Mamma Mia. I love Greatest Showman. I thought it was a wonderful film. Uh, I love Hugh Jackman and anything he does. He's fantastic. I don't think any of us thought the first time round that it was going to go through the stratosphere the way it did. Uh, I think Judy Kramer was as surprised as we all were. She was the producer. Yes. Yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, the show ran on, on, on in the West End for so many years. And I remember the night I saw it, it was packed to the rafters. And packed to the rafters with people who you know just didn't go to the theatre. They travelled from, you know, the North Country yeah. and Scotland down to London was to it, see Mamma Mia. Was it any less nerve-wracking to do the singing and the dancing? I'm looking at Pierce particularly. Thank you. In the second one? Yeah, yeah, second yeah. second time round. Terrifying singing. <laughs> this beautiful woman here sings like an angel and has such a gorgeous voice but and luckily, does it with such effortless we, ease. Thank you. We get to do it in the studio, which is so much less in- intimidating because mm-hmm. then they can kind of help us out mm-hmm. if we need it. Like I, I'm sure I was a bit pitchy and I needed some help. So You're that's, a bit pitchy? 
I think I had some uh, some flats and some sharps, and I think I don't in the movie because they fixed it in the studio. I could never tell myself really, really, whether I was flat, <laughs> sharp, or anything. I was just <laughs> sinking it all. I remember doing Dancing Queen. I didn't really learn the lines. <laughs> I just thought we're doing Dancing Queen because we had been doing it for weeks and weeks, and then we came to a particular moment when you and I are together, and suddenly I started getting notes. Um, I don't think you're saying the correct lines here. Oh, my God, we didn't even learn the song. It's like you think you know it, but you don't. Except Martin kept coming up to me, too. Yeah. Dancing queen. That's beautiful. It is. That's 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 my singing. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's great, and I think it works. is an evil person. I don't work for him. My firm works for him. Are you going to behave yourself tomorrow? I told you I'm going to do my job. I'm a reporter. I follow people that do not want to be followed. Venom, a character seen before in Spider-Man 3, uh, existing outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I'm not an expert on all this stuff. There's, you know, we know. The, 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 that universe and the, this universe. Let's just look at the film, OK? Story is directed by Ruben Fleischer. Tom Hardy is uh, Eddie, who's this investigative uh, blogger who is searching for dirt on Riz Ahmed's Colton Drake who runs a life foundation, but about whom, because he's looked at his girlfriend's email, he knows some dirt. Here's a clip. I've always believed uh-huh. that space exploration is crucial in our quest to cure everything that ails us here on Earth. So I have to ask, how does that work? You know, exactly the Life Foundation thing. How does it, how does it, uh, I don't know, how does it go about, say, testing pharmaceuticals? Eddie, we're talking about the rocket here. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm talking about the allegations. It says that you recruit the most vulnerable of us to volunteer for tests mm. that more often than not end up killing people. God. Eddie, oh, the they never got to out. Thank you very yeah. much. We're not finished. Yes, you are, Mr. Brock. Is that a threat? Have a nice life. Then what happens is that uh, Rizalman's character, he's come into possession of some uh, extraterrestrial life forms that he calls that, that, that need symbiotic relationships with humans, and he's trying to m- match them to humans with disastrous results until one of them finds Eddie and becomes Inky Swamp Thing. Now, the main problem with Venom is this. Very much like its central character, it is in two minds about what it wants to be and what it wants to do. So the central character is kind of arguing with this parasite that has taken him over. And it's like the film itself is having an argument with itself. So the first movie... He argues with a parasite. Yeah, the uh, the parasite is, is, is... like an inky blackness that is in him but comes out of him and tells him to okay. do things and he hears the voice in his head but then it kind of manifests outside and but bites people's heads off. The first movement seems to be sort of sombre character stuff. He loses his girlfriend, he loses his job, he then becomes possessed by this demonic force and it's, okay, fine. Then the middle bit gets really, really silly. The special effects kick in. We get we see him being chased by uh, Riz Ahmed's henchman but he's doing Mr. Elastic Band stuff, kind of, you know, sub-original Spider-Man twangy action sequences of no consequence whatsoever. And then about two-thirds of the way through, it starts to get weirdly funny. And as soon as our central character and the parasite are kind of generally reconciled, it kind of turns into all of me meets Swamp Thing or Howard the Duck meets the Blob. And I started enjoying it. And at one point, I thought when I came out afterwards, and I went to see it with Child 2... 
And we both went, what on earth was that? And then I said, well, you know what? It was never boring. And he said, no, it was at the beginning. And I said, oh, yes, I've forgotten that. Yes, it was. It was boring at the beginning. And then it was rubbish in the middle. And then it was funny. There's a certain point when it kind of achieves a Hudson Hawk level of daftness. And I started to go with it. So although the result is a complete and utter tonal mess. There is no question about that. But, but, but I am not saying it's a good film. But I did enjoy the last third of it because by that point it it seemed to have gone through so many permutations and combinations of what it what it wanted to be, and then it turned up as Tom Hardy having an argument with Swamp Thing inside him, and I thought, oh, okay, that I can do, I can live with that bit of the movie. So it was boring, then silly, then funny. Look out! Look out! Look out! Look out! Hero. I mean, mm. the weird thing about it is that um, uh, Donald Gleeson was on the show talking about Goodbye Christopher Robin, which manages to take an old text and reverentially do something interesting with it and turn it into something which respects the legacy of what it was. In the case of this, why would you even call it Peter Rabbit? Basically, why would you do that? Why would you not just throw it, say, what we're doing is we're making a rather crass sort of Looney Tunes live action CG hybrid Let's just start again from scratch. Let's not even pretend that what we're doing is taking some much-loved source and turning it into something that's new and original. If you've read the books, you'll be appalled. I think if you can read, you're likely to be appalled. Because what this does is... All the stuff that's charming about the source material, you know, the quaintness, the Britishness, the brilliantly right observation, that's all gone. What this looks like is it looks like a children's party at which the adults have decided to join in and spoil everything by playing loudly. And, and, and all the time that you're watching it, you just think, why don't you just call this irritating rabbit? I mean, that would be fine. If you called it just irritating rabbit voiced by James Corden, then it would be okay, well, so it is what it is. See, I wonder then if... I mean, I, ha- I haven't seen it. I just heard that clip, but I have in my mind. But, 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 but just, just tell me, from hearing that clip, weren't your teeth set on edge? Yes, because I think it sounds horrendously miscast. Because James Corden, who is fabulously talented and is making a huge success in America, so respect him for that. But that's not the. That doesn't sound like the voice of Peter the voice Rabbit. Of, no. So in, in Paddington, when they cast Ben Whishaw, yes. they got it absolutely right, and that's that was you know a great piece of casting. And- and, and but brilliantly, this just sounds like the wrong the wrong person to be Peter Rabbit. And brilliantly, they got it right, having lost the first person because obviously they had Colin Firth first, and it was right up until the you know the eleventh hour that it was Colin Firth, and then they went, you know, that's not the right voice. Well, that's what they should have done with this film, then, by the sound of it. I think what they should have done the eleventh hour, and this is they should have gone, that's not the right film. Let's 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 just all walk away and pretend it didn't happen. How you doing, Nate? It's Ranger Lambert. Are you having a laugh? Well, this is a military base. You remember how that works? Ranger Pentecost. And you must be Amar Namani. Yes, sir. Ranger, sir. Well, let's get you squared away. Oh, and uh, try not to steal anything while you're here. Did that haircut just call you Pentecost? As in badass stacker Pentecost? Pilot of Coyote Tango Hero of... Basically, the whole world. It's just a name. Yeah, a really cool name. So, <laughs> and that pretty much is. Kind I enjoyed of, that though. Did you? Okay, fine. So, what then happens is uh, stuff starts again. Uh, actually, stuff. Yeah, g- general stuff starts again. The the um that character. One of the things that they do is to 
bolt together, you know, a, a new Jaeger from old bits of robotics. And during the course of the movie, what happens is that there are we have new robots, we have big robots, we have lashed together robots, we have drones, we have uh, internecine squabbles, we have uh, you know uh, people turning on each other in strange ways, all that kind of stuff that I'm kind of interested in. But what we also get is that complete lack of emotional engagement or plot engagement or I actually care about this stuff engagement. One of the things that was interesting about the first film was that sense of scale was breathtaking. One of the things that's not interesting about the second film is that the sense of scale is really very boring. If you saw Godzilla, the new Godzilla, when you you know when you saw the thing with the halo dropping, and you really got a sense of the enormousness of it. There is none of that here. If you saw Kong Skull Island, there was a certain degree of you know witty invention in that. I know not everybody liked that film as much as I did, but there we go. If you saw Real Steel, which was the robots hitting each other movie that turned out to be really really good fun, I love that film. Yeah, so did I. Okay, there is none of that. What you get here instead is. The big beasties being directed by somebody who brilliantly does not have the pornographic sensibility of Michael Bay, so that's great, so we're not in Transformers territory, but equally doesn't have the magical sensibility of somebody like Guillermo del Toro that is needed to bring you into the story. So when you finally get large things storming around, smashing the sides off huge buildings, creating, you know, chaos inconceivable doesn't matter it doesn't feel like anything it doesn't have any impact i was reminded watching it of ben wheatley made a film called free fire which did not do well at the box office despite that i loved it but just goes to show critics don't know anything this movie will do much better at the box office than free fire did and ben wheatley said this interesting thing he said the reason he made free fire was that he had seen so many films in which really massive destruction happens and it didn't feel like anything it felt like you know it's the batman versus superman it's all that some just enormous destruction but i don't feel anything so he made a movie in which people get hit on the back of the knuckles with a wrench or somebody gets danged on the head by a falling flower pot the kind of thing that you can feel the kind of thing that you can you can wince from that the the stuff that has some kind of engagement in the case of pacific rim it just felt like lumpen dirgy perfectly well executed but absolutely unengaging and frankly boring stuff happening is everything okay yeah it's just i heard a rumor Something about a possible merger. There's a scene where you have an injectable microchip (laughs) put in your hand. And for all the world, that is a really painful (laughs) moment. Now, is that that just acting or is that actually really painful? Well, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of needles. (laughs) So, you, you know, again, that is rooted in truth. What you hear by way of a scream from my character in the film is probably what I'm doing internally when I go to the doctor and, and have to get injected. But yeah, I mean, the, the, he came at me with this thing that you wouldn't inject into a cow. It was so <laughs> enormous. So there was probably not much, much acting there either. I wonder if uh, one of the scenes you might have enjoyed slightly more is when we see you 
doing a, th- a word perfect version of getting jiggy with it. <laughs> yes, yes. No, that was a lot of fun. I'm a, I'm a fan of Will Smith's and of course that song. But the thing with that one is the director had this idea of me singing along to getting jiggy with it in the car, and only told me two days before we shot it. So you know, as much as I love the song, I didn't know every verse of it. So my poor children were subjected to wall to wall getting jiggy with it for two days as I learned uh, the song. Yeah. Dad, you're so embarrassing. I mean, that's <laughs> standard, isn't it? Yeah, that's every day, let alone you add on top of it getting jiggy with it. Bring it. That was David Ayelowo talking gringo, ending part one of our best of 2018. Still to come, Black Panther, Phantom Thread, Isle of Dogs, Show Dogs. No Dogs is better than Show Dogs. Plus Saoirse Ronan, Lupita Nyong'o, Margot Robbie and Dame Helen Mirren. First, the latest Five Live News. Welcome back. It's Mark Kermode and Simon Mayer with our best of 2018 here on BBC Radio 5 Live. Remember, please, do not text because we're not really here. Coming up in this section, Idris Elba, Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, The Happy Time Murders and an email from Uncle... Yeah, thank you. We'll come to that in due course. By the way, it's a recorded show, so please don't text. First, Gerard Butler had a new film out in October. It was called Hunter Killer and Mark found it utterly preposterous. There's a new Gerard Butler film out. Oh, excellent. Hunter oh, Killer. I've been so, waiting for this. Yeah, I know you have. On buses. Yeah. So the, have you seen it on the side of buses? I have seen so it. So you've seen the poster, right? So yes. the poster's basically trying to say, look, it's it's a bit Crimson Tide and it's a bit Hunt for Red October, although I'm very disappointed they didn't go for Olympus Has Sunken. Uh, so Gerard Butler, that thank good. you very much. That would be very good. Uh, hang on. Gerard Butler is a roguish submarine, com- is there any other kind, a roguish submarine commander who is called in to essentially rescue the honest, handsome and very likeable Russian president after a rogue element within his establishment takes him and threatens to kickstart World War II. Now, this is a delicate operation. World War III. Three. World War II, okay, three, yeah. pardon me. Yes, kickstart World War III. I beg your pardon. The, believe me, the plot is very confusing. This will involve Gerard going into waters that no American sub has ever been in before. And consequently, he will end up speaking in no fixed accent because uh, obviously he wants to avoid detection. Most of the narrative consists of Gerard Butler saying things like, submerge the ship and dive, dive, and then looking concerned while the ship does the thing that he's just said it should do. And then every now and then they cut to external shots, which... I have to say, at one point... Do you ever watch Teletubbies? Of course. You know the bit with Teletubbies with the three ships that come sailing in? Yeah. Reminded me of that. Anyway, here is an action-packed clip of some stuff happening in the film. Snapshot. Prepare to fire 2-1 on the bearing of enemy contact. Ship ready. Solution ready. Weapon ready. Match sonar bearings and fire. Normal launch. Torpedo course. 219. A lot of interference on the surface, Captain. Hard to find her in the noise. Turn weapon 180 degrees. Reduce surge step to 40 feet. Reduce step to 40 feet. Aye, Captain. There she is. That had a very clear narrative. Yeah, you got the thing, didn't you? So so how it was all going. So there's an awful lot of that. So basically, um, (laughs) I mean... Okay, it makes no sense whatsoever, evidently. And uh, there is, uh, you know, Gary Oldman, okay? So Gary Gary Oldman, when was the last, did we interview Gary Oldman for Churchill? We did. Okay. Well, I did. 
Yeah, and and so you know Gary Oldman, he did all the thing, and he did the Churchill, and he bloody bloody blah, and then awards, and you know fabulous, and that's all great. So now Gary Oldman has gone back to oh, I've got to pay the rent, and the way Gary Oldman is paying the rent is doing that thing that he does, which is walking around in B movies, shouting every single line. It doesn't matter what it is, even if it's hello, I would like a cup of coffee now, and you go oh. It's Oof. it's shouty Gary, and it doesn't matter what he's doing. He walks into sort of mission rooms. I've got a very secret mission that I want to tell you about. We must talk in private over here. And <laughs> literally, just it's, turning my. Head. <laughs> Can you lose a bit of level from Mark? And uh, there's a bit at the beginning. There's a bit at the beginning when uh, when Gerard is seen. He's in the Highlands. I'm going to think because normally in a Gerard Butler film, it's Gerard doing the shouting. You know, Gerard is because okay. So the, his, his thing, okay. So Gerard is a, he's a he's a he's a complicated character. At the beginning of the film, right, we see him and he's hunting stag. I think I think it's a stag. Although I read in one review that it was an elk. Um, and and he's got a crossbow, right? And he's there and he's oh, he's military. Oh, I think he's in the Highlands. Oh, yeah, thing. And they look down at war. So thing. And then oh oh no, behind the stag. Oh, it's mummy and baby. Oh, mustn't kill. What mummy? No, mummy, mummy, baby, deer or stag. Elk or not mummy and baby. Baby moves, you're fine. Yes, you're mummy and baby. So, no, mustn't kill them. So, immediately you're thinking, oh, this tells me so much. It tells me, firstly, that he's tough but sensitive. And secondly, it tells me, you're trying to make me think of The Deer Hunter, which won best film, wrongly, which won best film. Although the only thing this is going to win is a whole bunch of razzies. It is not good. I thought at one point it was going to be, you know, that kind of so so silly it's entertaining and then i kept thinking you know i there is there's a i, I saw a, a nature documentary that said if birds get really terrified or really confused by something they fall asleep really well i was that i, was, I kept thinking this is this is head noddingly dull um so yeah there we go it is Basically, it is Olympus has sunken. It is the it is exactly the movie that you think it is. It's Gerard. The thing that they're most proud of is the scenes when he goes dive, dive, or submerge the ship, or blah 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 blah, and then the floor tilts, and then everybody leans backwards. Wow! <clears throat> so real space age effects. Real space age effects. That's yeah. very exciting. You know, man, in the old days, I always knew like you were gonna do something that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they liked the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. What? I just want to take another look at you. In all the good times I find myself longing for change. Here's what we're going to do. We come sing that song that I love. No, I can't do that. No. Just a word on your speaking voice. Yeah. Um, so your older brother is Sam Elliott, and, but you, and the two of you sound like brothers. But what did you do to your voice? Because we're used to this right. voice that you're speaking in now. But where does, where does that come from? How did you get I mean, that? Took, that was probably the hardest thing. I worked with this guy, Tim Monick, who's an incredible dialect coach, who I worked with on American Sniper. And he just moved to L.A. And uh, luckily, it's all about prep. I had three, three years to prep this movie. And I spent a good six months, I think, five days a week, 
two or three hours a day doing all these exercises, listening to all these Sam Elliott interviews, and just lowering, working on lowering my voice. And at first, I could only do it with my head down like this. And I thought, well, how am I going to be able to? And it was painful, actually. My, 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 I felt like I was physically lowering my... So is it like, is it muscular? Is that, is that I what I think it's doing? muscle memory what starts to happen. Because you can only really do it relaxed. That's the point. So you muscle it first, and then the more exercise... I mean, I would have like a, le- like a leaflet of 20 pages, all with exercises I would do every day. It was just monotonous. And each time it's getting It lower. would just get lower, and then more comfortable. The key is that I could speak to you like this, because you have to be emotionally available and present, mm-hmm. not thinking like I'm trying to affect a voice. So it just took... It just takes practice and practice and practice. And I was... I I remember the day that it, it, it clicked, and I was so thankful because I thought if I don't get this, then there's no – I mean, it's not going to work. And is that always in your repertoire? Can you go there anytime, or are you no. happy, happy to leave that? No, it's gone. He's gone. I'm not asking you to do it. Yeah. I'm just wondering I, whether I, that's that – you know, you know, It could almost through – if I was – if you and I watched like three scenes right now, I think I, I could probably uh, glide right into it. In the old days, they might have said – Smoke 60 cigarettes and have some Jack Daniels and maybe, maybe you'll get there. And what kind of a director are you, do you think? I found, found this quote from Clint Eastwood who you mentioned earlier talking about you, saying he loves to know everything that's going on. He loves the whole process. I see a lot of curiosity mm. in him. I don't know. And, and he thinks he's a little bit like you're a little bit like him. Is, would, you, would you go along with that? Yeah, I mean, John Huston, I think one of the last things he was asked, um, what his favorite thing is about himself, and I think he said curiosity. So there's some, I'm paraphrasing it, but um, I am very curious, and I love cinema, and, I, and it's served me since I was a kid in every single way possible. So I've always been fascinated, and he's right. I ask a thousand questions, and uh, I love learning. Um, and um, I think because I've been that way for 20-plus years I've been in this business, it really provided me with the skill set to to kind of just gently move into this position without it, it didn't feel unnatural in any way uh, do, being directing this. It, it really didn't at all. So does that mean your next project you are going to be easier to direct, or does this mean that your next project is you directing? What do we what do we get? Next? You know, I I've never been more fulfilled, and I enjoy directing while I'm acting in a scene. I actually think that's when I could be most effective as a director is actually to be on the field with the actors. As long as I've prepped enough and I know exactly what I want, I know what my shots are. And you know, so Maddie Libetique, the cinematographer, we've already talked about everything. Um, and you can make adjustments on the fly. There's, there's no, and you can. It's all about rhythm when you're shooting a scene. And so when you're in the scene, I, could, I don't have to yell. I don't have to say cut. I don't have to do anything. I could just actually maneuver things as we're rolling because I'm actually in it with them. So I, I love that. That's, that's the favorite, my favorite thing I've ever done in this profession. And um, that's all I'd really want to do if people would allow me to do it. <laughs> Maybe it's time to let the old ways down Maybe it's time to let the old ways down It takes a lot to change, man Hell, it takes a lot to try You know, man, in the old days I always knew, like, you were gonna do something That you'd be all right It's the first time I'm worried about you. Can I ask you a personal question? I really like this. And believe me, I I, I went in nervous, not least because, you know, when a story's been told that many times, 
there is the feeling that, okay, one of the reasons it's told that many times is because it's an archetypal story. It is, you know, it's a story that works through different generations, but it also means that it's possible to fluff it. And the immediate things to say are, firstly, Bradley Cooper's performance is very convincing, and I did believe him as a rock. As I said, that moment when he walks on stage, you think, fine. What's more convincing is his performance behind the camera, because as was evident in your interview with him, he knows a lot of films. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, he's 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 the real deal. And I confess that I was not somebody who, when Bradley Cooper was first starring in those kind of fantastically successful gross-out comedies, and you know, I thought, okay, I'm not. I I didn't expect that I would be saying, well, I think he's done a really really good job of directing this, and it's a passion project for him. You know, he's co-written the script, he's contributed to the songwriting, he's so he's, so it's you know it's it's his project. The other thing is that in the case of Lady Gaga, um, we know that she can dominate a stage we know that she can but the stuff that's really impressive with her is the scenes before she's doing that the scenes when you see her in her schlubby job being told that she has to take out the trash before she's able to go off and do the nightclub karaoke thing the scene in which when they get into his private plane for the first time and they really do look like they've never been in a private plane ever and yet this is we know a megastar who's kind of useful so what the film's doing on a sort of meta level is taking somebody who you know can do something and then showing them you them showing you them doing something else that you didn't know what they can do and then inverting those two roles because in the case of Bradley Cooper he's having to demonstrate that he can be a rock star and in the case of her she's having to demonstrate that she could not be a rock star and somehow it works so perfectly that at no point in the film did I think I'm watching Bradley Cooper pretending to be a rock star and Lady Gaga pretending not to be a rock star what I thought was Yes, I'm watching the story of a falling and a flying star intersecting in the middle of it. So firstly, from a performance level and a you know direction of it, it was really well done. Secondly, there were moments in it that I thought reminded me of the tenderness of Grace of My Heart, which I still think is one of the great, you know, undersung music movies of all time. It's significant that there's a Carol King poster, you know, tapestry on the on the wall of the alley character. And there's a lovely moment in the studio when she she finds herself unable to 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 find her voice. And he says, well, why don't you play the piano? Because that's when you were singing the song. You you know you played the piano and she does. And I thought that worked really well. But the other thing that's interesting is that the 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 story is dealing on the one hand with support and on the other hand with resentment, you know, that somebody is successful and their success is fading and somebody else is unsuccessful and their success is climbing and there's a moment in the middle, but does the rising star of one, does it cause resentment in the other? Well, yes, it does to some extent. However, I do think in this version, the dynamic is slightly different. I mean, the dynamic is broadly supportive. It's just that he's he's in a in a self-destructive spiral and you know when you see her at first you know she's kind of singing soulful it's la vie en rose it's those kind of songs those almost those torch songs but as her career goes on she becomes more and more lady gaga-esque and of course the key thing about lady gaga is in real she's completely in control of what she's doing so it's not just the cliched sense that she's become famous and she's suddenly being molded into this thing that she wasn't that's inauthentic there's a whole other level, which is that she's moulding herself and she she was always on this trajectory, regardless of whether or not her life intersected with him. And the last thing I'd say, because I'm sorry I'm speaking at length about this, is this story only works if you believe it as a love story. The story only works if at the centre of it you believe the stuff in the parking lot. If you believe the stuff when after bad things have happened, they come home and fall into each other's arms. 
it only works if you genuinely believe that when they are apart, they are torn. And I did. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Seaman. I have put <clears throat> fingers to keyboard to contribute to the continuing discussion on how to address relatives in the righteous dismissal, dismissal, dismissal. Of, the righteous dismissal, dismissal of bro as an appropriate word to call anyone. Yeah. There's been a general decline in standards of respect shown to relatives more senior in years by the younger generation, which to me now encompasses anyone under 55. <laughs> Although I should say, but at, at the end of this email, there's a slightly rude word. Okay. As an example, I refer to the recent discovery I've made concerning how my nieces and nephews have referred to me in previous decades. I am one of five siblings, three elder brothers, one sadly no longer with us, and a younger sister. Between us, we have produced 13 children, of which 10 are my nieces and nephews. We've been spread around the UK from Hampshire to Dunblane, where I reside and points in between, where I reside and points, points in, between. in between, so that in the 80s and 90s, in order for us all to meet, we had large family get-togethers in hotels two or three times a year. Bring a gregarious, cheerful chap, I took it upon myself to spread humour and bonhomie at these times <laughs> and generally wind up my nieces and nephews much as I did my own three kids. What a laugh I was and how they seemed to enjoy it all. <laughs> At the funeral of my brother-in-law this year, I was reminiscing with assorted now very grown-up nieces and nephews about these family events. I was informed that I was known amongst them by the moniker Uncle Knobhead. <laughs> did, that, did Robin let that through? He did. When sharing this news with my younger daughter, she was well aware and thought it was well-deserved. On reflection, I feel pleased to have made an impact on these children that deserve the recognition of being awarded a nickname. Certainly it carries more kudos, don't you agree, than being called bro. Thank you, Jeffrey. Can I just say that across the country, at various times of day, there are people listening to the podcast who just got to that bit and spat coffee all over themselves. I'm afraid they did. Thanks to Jeffrey, a.k.a. Uncle Knobhead. When I was a boy... My brother would always ask me, which way you're going to go? Will you go with the righteous or will you go with the damned? This is a story about the part I chose. Kingston, Jamaica. King Fox controlled the streets. He told me to forget about my brother. Redemption. Deliver the goods to Rico. When it is done, you let me know. Yes, I'm in London. London. It's a very heavy patois, and I, it reminded me a bit of going to see a Shakespeare play where it takes you, <laughs> it takes you a, a, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes to get into the rhythm of the speech, but then yeah. once, once you're in it, you go, okay, fine, I'm, I'm on board now. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, was, I was super, super aware of, you know, that I was asking an audience to, to, to really, you know, that aren't familiar with the accent, but to really listen 
Um, but what what's come from that is that people feel like they've just taken a real authentic journey into you know a, a, a place they, they didn't know too much about. Um, I've seen the film with subtitles as well, and and it's you know it's is equally as enjoyable. So I think that you know audiences once they get to see this film, whether they see it with subtitles or not will feel like they stepped back into the 80s. They will feel like they've been to Jamaica for a second. And that was Who gets the subtitles? Well, Americans. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but there will be a I mean um, there will be a subtitle version available when you know it, eventually it comes out on the sort of SVODs, but you know, um I think this is a film my hope is that people will watch it, you know, over and over again. You know, there'll be moments. Let's have a look at Yardi. And even if they don't watch it, they'll just, you know, enjoy the music and enjoy the language and enjoy, you know, the visuals. Yeah, the, the, sound, the soundtrack is terrific. Uh, the dancehall and, re and reggae tunes. Did you ever consider uh, including the 1967 Desmond Decker in the Aces track 007? <laughs> what? Now, that <laughs> has won the award for the most inventive link into the bond. I, I honestly... You win the award, Simon. You definitely win the award. I'm just asking about the music. Interest. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really good. I, I want to give you a round of applause. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to um, use that track particularly. Didn't feel appropriate. No. What kind of and, and and as a as a director, Idris, when you're when you're on set, you've worked with some of the very finest directors. Who have you who have you learnt the most from? Um, I, well, I mentioned Kari Fukunaga earlier. Uh, who I think is an incredible director and he was the director that definitely you know inspired me the most to go and make this movie um Ridley Scott though um Ridley Scott and I made um two films <clears throat> Prometheus and um, American Gangster and it's a masterclass you know it was just a masterclass I, I would be on set watching him work even if I wasn't in the scene because He's incredible, um, and he taught me. Uh, he taught me about precision. You know, he, he taught me that you know people watch films three or four times, and each time you should let them see something new. Each time, and to do that, you need to give layers and layers and layers of information, depth, authenticity, and that's what you know I took from from Ridley. You two are the most decorated offices in this department. What do you see? Looks like a robbery gone wrong to me. This wasn't a robbery. This was a hit. What the? Someone out there <gasps> is killing puppets. Hey, handsome. I thought it was absolutely terrible. And the, the I thought it was terrible for two reasons. Firstly, it's, I mean, it's... Its humour is staggeringly misjudged in as much as it imagines that what's funny is the collision of taking, you know, puppet, Muppet-like puppet characters and just getting them to do a whole bunch of stuff that's kind of, you know, sweary and uh, and obscene and violent. Like, because that in itself is a gag. So firstly, that gag isn't very funny. Secondly, this has been done before. And I'm not referring to it done before with things like Team America. I think Team America World Police is really funny. And why is it really funny? Because it's really well written. It's really, really smart. Yes, it's, you know, vulgar and outrageous and it's got that kind of Thunderbirds puppets doing rude stuff but it's funny because it's funny because it's well written this however reminded me of that Peter Jackson movie from 
back in the late 80s called Meet the Feebles, which is essentially the same movie and which did everything that this movie is doing and did it better and did it first and was terrible. And the crucial thing about Peter Jackson's Meet the Feebles is that it was made at a point when another film that he was trying to make had fallen down and he'd had a, you know, quite a lot of production troubles going on. There was a film that he really wanted to make and he couldn't make it and suddenly the funding became available to make Meet the Feebles and he made it and the weird thing about Meet the Feebles which is pretty much the blueprint for what this is is that it's a really nasty mean-spirited film that seems to be fired by frustration and anger rather than being fired by anything creative. In the case of The Happy Time Murders therefore you've got something which is a pale imitation of a film I didn't like the first time round and a film which its own director says is has been compromised because it's been cut in, in order to make it funnier and yet it wasn't funny and I think it's a real shame I think it's a really embarrassingly poor piece of work that you know at very best has a certain kind of you know mondo interest in like oh really we're actually going to see this happen in this scene you're actually doing that but that's it and that sort of prurient interest lasts for about five minutes after which you just think Oh, really? You know, it's just, yeah, it's, I thought it was, I thought it was terrible. I thought it was really, really depressingly poor. I'll have your badge for this. Mark's review of the Happy Time Murders ending that section of our Kermit of Mayo Best of 2018. Another hour of highlights to come, including Black Panther, Phantom Thread and Winchester. Moreover, a low light in that particular case. Plus, Chloe Grace Moretz, Ava DuVernay and Brian Cranston after the latest Five Live News. Welcome back to Kermit and Mayer's Film Review. It's hour two of our Best of 2018 show here on BBC Radio Five Live. Remember not to text, as this is a recorded programme, obviously. Coming up, reviews of Isle of Dogs, Winchester and Show Dogs. Can you say that as though it might still be quite nice? No. OK. Plus, Ava DuVernay, Chloe Grace Moretz, Dame Helen Mirren... And Brian Cranston. But first, back in the summer, we received an email from a certain royal personage. Well, broadcasting royalty, anyway. If you cast your mind back a couple of weeks... Yes. Uh, ..to when we were here uh, doing this thing last time, mm-hmm. uh, you might remember some talk of the BBC's recent royal wedding coverage. Right. Yes. And in particular, the moment when the estimable Kirsty Young... Oh, yes! That's right. She said, how do you wear a hat? When the estimable... Kirsty Young said this. What a day for Freya, who's 17. It's the first time she's ever worn a hat. She said, Mum, how do you wear a hat? I said, you just wear a hat. OK, classic. How do you wear a hat? You just <laughs> wear a hat. hat. This led to much speculation that Kirsty might be a fan of the show. Not likely, we thought. Perhaps she'll email us, we chuckled. No, really? Hey, hang on, is this, is, just before you start, is mm-hmm. this real or is this a joke? Why would it be a joke? Well, you're very prankish recently. Dear Mike and Bernie Witterers. <laughs> there you go, instantly you know. There we go. Class yeah. product. Very good. From a class broadcast. There we go. With reference to your listener, Virginia Barry's inquiry regarding my how do you wear a hat, you just wear a hat comment, writes Kirsty, during my recent stint on BBC One covering the royal wedding, allow me to explain myself. Okay. 
This was not a craven bid to subvert an event of national significance by signalling my membership of the church. Rather, it was the result of having approximately five hours of broadcasting air to fill and thus turning wittering into what felt at times like something close to an Olympic sport. Welcome to our world. I am indeed a member of your church and proud to be so. However, my brief and unplanned on-air foray into Witterlingo came about entirely by accident. At approximately 10.32am, our TV director cut up pictures from inside the magnificent nave of St George's Chapel where guests were mingling and exchanging pleasantries prior to the service. Who should appear slap-bang in the centre of frame but my husband, accompanied by one of our daughters? Just to be clear, I did know they were going to the wedding. It wasn't that much of a surprise. <laughs> but given that they weren't, say, Idris Elba, Serena Williams, Kerry Mulligan, or indeed the bride and groom, I was a little taken aback to see them there on screen. And as a result, found myself shall we say, freewheeling a little. This is such a well-written email, I love it. <laughs> I have yet to install your hugely profitable iWitter app on my device and am therefore entirely unaware day-to-day of the proximity of fellow church members, so it's reassuring, not to say heartwarming, to know that on a day when millions of people were watching, at least one, that is to say Virginia, was a fellow member of the church. Whilst I'm here, regarding Sir Sharonan... Yes. <laughs> around a decade ago, I was in L.A., and found myself being... This is such a well-travelled eBay. <laughs> it is. I was in LA and found myself being introduced to a woman called Sharona. Before I had time to proffer my hand by way of the traditional shake and say, I'm Kirsty, she said... I think Kirsty says Q fiendishly inaccurate LA accent. <laughs> yeah, I am actually the Sharona, you know, from the song. That's Sharona. <laughs> Where was that person from? Suffice to say, said Sharona exhibited none of the <laughs> humble, low-key appeal of the actual Sir Sharonan. <laughs> One more thing before I go. <laughs> so she's actually met his Sharona. The original Sharona. The original Sharona. Someone who claims to be the original Sharona, anyway. One more thing before I go. Given our little prompting over... This is the, this is the sting in the tail. Oh, the is it? OK, about. fine. What have we done? Given how little prompting over a number of months you gave potential voters, may I wholeheartedly... <laughs> OK, fine. ...congratulate you both on the remarkable, some might say unbelievable, achievement in winning the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice Gong. Second year running. If only other radio shows on other speech-based networks had been of a mind to relentlessly canvas their loyal listeners throughout their weekly podcasts, who knows how different the final result may have been. But in the meantime, three entirely unbitter cheers for the democratic will of the nation, in inverted commas. Very good. Very good. TT and DWTN, etc. So that is the one and only uh, Kirsty Young. Can we frame that? National institution and national treasure. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders. Calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exiled colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Words out of my mouth. Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it. Ever. You're Rex. You're King. You're Duke. You're Boss. I'm Chief. Isle of Dogs takes you on a little journey that you may not be familiar with, a culture, a language of the Japanese uh, people. And I think I found it fascinating to read it, first of all, and then to perform within it. It's an allegory of sorts, but it's suitable for all family ages. And it's fun. It's engaging. It's it's adventurous. uh, It's heartfelt. You may cry during it. You, you'll laugh a few times. And you feel very compassionate toward these 
puppets that have human voices behind them. And But there is messaging in it. But the biggest message of all is just feeling compassion and care for other beings, whether they be animals or humans. Why are all the dogs on this uh, trash island? What are they doing there? Um, there is... Uh, fear-mongering that is happening among government officials that are greedy and uh, they've developed a a pro-cat environment that also creates a xenophobia kind of issues and so they've exiled dogs to live on this trash island basically put them in the dustbin they're they're done and if you survive you're lucky and we don't care but we do care. And there's a young boy who is the hero of the story. And he is out to find his dog because love conquers all. And he loves this dog and is not going to stop until he finds it. We should say it's not cute. No, it's, it's, there's a, a level of sophistication to it that all Wes Anderson stories have. And the other common denominator, really, is that Wes always likes to write about identity and seeking identity, finding where you belong in your society. And that's present as well in Isle of Dogs. Wes has said that uh, he didn't think of the dogs as dogs. He thought of them as people. Yes, as we do with our dogs. We talk to them as if they understand. And there's a certain level of comprehension from our dogs to us. But we, as human beings, do that a lot. We transpose what we feel as humans onto our pets, whether it's accurate or not, or whether they come, how much they do understand, it doesn't matter. Where does Chief fit in in the pecking order on the Isle of Dogs? Chief happens to be the alpha dog in this pack, primarily because might is right. He's a stray dog, feral and willing to fight. And I guess in that case, the the one that's willing to fight for turf is the boss. And so uh, he has taken that on. And he has disdain for any domesticated animals until he realizes that there is actually a a purpose for that. And when you think of, of what dogs bring to us in our domesticated lives as humans... Who wouldn't want that? They want compassion. They want playfulness. They want love. They are completely loyal. Those are traits that you wish you can find in humans more often. To the north, a long rickety causeway over a noxious sludge marsh leading to a radioactive landfill polluted by toxic chemical garbage. That's our destination. Great. Get ready to jump. The dogs all speak... English. They all speak like Wes Anderson characters. They all speak like the kind of characters you get, you know, in in Royal Tannenbaums or whatever. And so consequently, you can read them as people. You can say it's about disenfranchised people. It's about people being pushed to the sides of, of society, about people being literally dumped in the trash can. Or you can read it about a story about cruelty to animals and i mean there's this whole thing going on about this brian cranston was talking about, about the xenophobia of cats you know that now the uh, the major city um is actually it's friendly to cats but the dogs have been driven out so you can see that if you want or you can read it as a story about dogs and one of the reasons that it works funnily enough is that the observations of canine behavior 
are actually very well done. Now, I was not a fan of Fantastic Mr. Fox. I found Fantastic Mr. Fox kind of, for me, felt like a sort of smug adult joke. And in fact, I think that when I was reviewing it, I said it was like a bunch of adults had turned up at a kid's party and had sort of taken it over. And that that troubled me. In the case of this, it did work. Firstly, because I think it's visually ravishing and beautiful. I mean, amidst the trash heaps, amidst all the junk topia going on there is real beauty there's a lovely sequence in which they're in a shelter and the light is being filtered through these empty bottles and old sake cans and it's but it's glowing and it glows you know really tenderly i love the fur on the dogs i love the way that it rustles because as the animators are moving them they're moving them with their hands and uh, this kind of creates the, you know the illusion of the wind blowing through them i love how scratchy they are i love how much they look like they are, you know, on the one hand, they're just sort of thin. And uh, at the beginning, we get this description of what snout fever and the canine flu has done to them. It's made them insomniac. And the rest of it. But they are, they're really tactile and you really believe them. And on the other hand, it's the incredible journey. And on the other hand, it's a story of a boy and his dog. It's a story of a, you know, of a young boy looking for his dog. And when I've, I've seen it just the once and the first time of seeing it, I thought, firstly, I have to see this again because there's so much going on in it. You know, the score is really well done, which is mixing these type of drums with, you know, instruments that you wouldn't expect. And there are other levels of allegory going on that Brian Cranston was uh, talking about. But when I watched it the first time, I just thought, I really like these characters. I really love the tactility of the animation. I love the camera work. I love the fact that it, on the it, there is the symmetry of the frame, which you expect from Anderson and, you know, Tristan Oliver. And then there is the scrappiness of the characters, which I really, really enjoyed. And I... I thought it was terrific. Old Sar- I'm feeling uh, very positive. Old Sarky Cans yeah. would be a good nickname for you, actually. I've just mentioned Old Sarky Cans. Old Sarky Cans, you okay. mentioned. I'll take that. I think chin. it's about, I think, uh, and in the longer version of the interview, yes. I, I, I think it's about authoritarianism and immigration, actually. Yes, well, you and know. Not about not about dogs. No, no, I, as I said, I think you can absolutely read it like that. But one of the things that that, that I think makes it work is that you can read it in a number of different ways. It's gargantuan seven-storied structure with no apparent rhyme or reason. Built on the orders of a grieving widow. Sarah Winchester's mind is as chaotic as the house itself. We're worried about her sanity, Dr. Price. Mrs. Winchester, it's a pleasure to finally meet you. What genre would you say this is? This I would say this is a ghost movie, a ghost story. A ghost story People are calling it a, rather than a horror story, yes. I would say it's a real old-fashioned ghost story. I would hope in the genre of the great Japanese ghost story movies, you know, um, the Japanese culture, which is so into the, not the worship of the dead, or to a certain extent the worship of your ancestors, have a, a very visceral understanding or feeling about about ghosts and that has been reflected in, you know, great, great ghost, yes. movie, ghost movies coming it, out of Japan. And it, it's obviously the perfect place to set a film because, it, I mean, it's claimed to be, of course, one of the many houses that claims to be the most haunted house uh, in the world. So that's the angle that you're going down and I can't imagine anywhere that is more suitable unless you go to Hampton Court or somewhere you know because of the legends which are there and oh no absolutely it's you know much more than Hampton Court because of the the basic insanity of the house you know although I have to say being in the house 
you do feel, because it's such an extraordinary environment, it's like a crazy house. You know, in my um, hometown, my wonderful hometown of Southend-on-Sea, we used to have a little fun fair. And in the little fun fair, Peter Patton's playground, was a, a thing called the crazy house. Strange mirrors at the ends of corridors and, you know, things all went at funny angles. And it is rather like going into the Winchester house. It's mm. a little bit like going into a crazy house. You say, so you say that there's an insanity to the house. Might she have been insane? or do you th- I think she might have. I, I mean, one thinks she had to have had some sort of major psychological mental breakdown. But at the same time, she was very beloved and the people who worked with her never abandoned her and and were utterly loyal to her for many, many, many years. So you cannot deny that there was an obsession there, you know, an absolute driving obsession that never that never stopped for 20 or 30 years. I would imagine a great character for you to get your teeth into because some people have an awareness maybe of the story. We'll certainly know about the Winchester rifle. Some people have visited the house, but we don't really know anything about her. So it's like a, a blank it's canvas It's a bit of a you. blank canvas. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I took it on board because I... I love the idea of doing a ghost story. I don't believe in ghosts. I have to rapidly add myself. But I do believe in houses having atmospheres. And strangely, I found the atmosphere in the Winchester house to be very benign. It may well be haunted, but there is a there is a sweetness about it. It doesn't have a feeling of cruelty or harshness. It, 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 there's something quite sweet about it. Do you believe in ghosts, Dr. Price? I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. I feel their presence. Well, I mean, it's, you know, such an interesting story. The idea of uh, this, this widow, we, there is a certain amount that we know, a certain amount that we don't know. You know, legend has it that she was told by a medium to move to the West Coast, although other people say, her biographer says that's uh, not true. Um, the story about whether or not construction continued seven days a week, 24 hours a day for over 30 years, or whether that itself is an exaggeration. The involvement in the earthquake, uh, whether she was a medium, whether she was a spiritual, whether, you know, who knows? Was was she mad? Was she... See, so all these sort of lovely ambiguities. And then in that interview, uh, Dame Helen says, you know, it's like those Japanese uh, ghost stories. So we're thinking then, you know, get to Monogatari or Dark Water or, you know, films in which ghosts are there and they're real and they're everyday. And we're thinking of all that lovely ambiguity. A big coming. And that brilliant thing that you said about, wow, this looks like it's, a, you know, it's a movie. Maybe it's raising ideas of, you know, gun laws and guilt about guns and all those things. Oh, and, you know, and it's, and, and she, she brilliantly, it, it, it sort of it makes you think that what we're going to be looking at is something like, you know, the original version of, of The Haunting, Robert Wise's The Haunting. Actually, what you get is Jan de Bont's The Haunting. I mean, with all that ambiguity that's spoken about, it's just... I mean, I like the Spirit Brothers. I thought they, they did a very interesting job with Jigsaw and they've got uh, creative, uh, you know, ideas and influences and all the rest of it. And the film itself is an absolute... Just... Quite, 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 boo, quite, 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 boo, quite, quite. Any ambiguity? Okay, so, oh, is she, you know, is she crazy or is she visited by spirits? Well, remember that scene in Poltergeist in which somebody says, you know, it's incredible, we put these cameras in and if you look at them over stop time, you see that a pencil moves its way all across the room. They go, really? Look at this. They open a door and there are record players flying around and dancing mannequins. The whole movie is like that. It's, you know, mentioning it as like a fairground, right? It is a film that goes from the beginning, oh, here's some ambiguity. No, are we worried about, no, let's, let's, let's shoot guns at ghosts. 
Let's have every room in the house going boom, crash, bang. Let's every five minutes have a scary face go boom out of nowhere. Let's have uh, every character carve themselves such a thick slice of ham that there is no debate about whether or not, you know, oh, are they in touch with another world or are they crazy? It's just, you know, are they in pantomime or are they in music hall? It's a film which shouts so loudly at its audience from the very back of the stalls that I found my head starting to lull. So I had to be nudged in the arm very heavily by Alan Jones going, Gah! it's, I mean, it's not good. And it's not good in a way which is made worse by the fact that there's all this potential in this story about somebody building a house and consequently building all the stuff. And what do we know? And what do we don't know? And then the film just goes, what we know is this works. Dun da 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 bang. Dun da 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 bang. Dun da 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 boo. Dun da 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 oh. Dun da 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 da. And you like really? Oh, there's the scary face with the funny bit. But it's 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 rubbish. You know, it's God who created these bodies of ours, and it's God who blesses them, and with His help. We can keep these bodies working in optimum condition. Are you ready to start your fun to be fit blessercise program? Huh? Come on, everybody. Let's warm up with a Bible verse. There aren't a lot of laugh out loud moments, but I did find myself when the blessercise keep fit video. Oh, yeah. Uh, comes on that's quite funny just you want to just explain what happens there yeah so uh <laughs> so first of all this is, this is she's a real woman bless her size so she's oh. a yeah yeah she's a real woman uh we changed her name to tandy campbell she's a woman who does aerobics uh for god and uh, i joke and say she's gyrating for jesus but uh, <laughs> but it's it's a scene in which um well my character has a big turning point in the film and she allows the self-doubt to grow and, and for herself to give in to the system and, and try to pray the gay away. Part of it is exercising and doing your aerobics for God and evoking the Lord through your body. <laughs> so those were, I mean, there's so many minutes, I mean, minutes on minutes of, of uh, footage of me working out to that, that video in the movie that was on the cutting room floor. I had no idea that Blesser Size was an actual person. Oh, yes, she is. Wow. And didn't your dad break a Spice Girls CD one time because it had to become one? Yes, yeah. He he was a very conservative, strict man when we were younger. And uh, we weren't allowed to listen to any music that was not pretty much gospel. <laughs> well, okay. But what was it about the Spice Girls that he had a problem with? <laughs> to Become One is a song about fornicating. Come on. I'm an undercover cop working a kidnapping case. A baby panda was stolen, and they're using a dog show as a front for animal smuggling. Why are there dogs in this meeting? That's what partners are for. What is happening in this town? Let's take these smugglers down. Show dogs. Now, I'm looking forward to this, because I can tell from your tone of voice how much you've enjoyed it. I just, you know, no dogs is better than show dogs. Um, there's a line in show dogs in which one of the... It's actually in one of the trailers in which one of the dogs says... No one makes talking dog movies anymore. And this is a gag because somebody's made a talking dog movie. And you go, yeah, there's a reason. And I'm kind of watching it. It's like, is it a real life dog movie or an animated dog movie? It's a real life dog movie with animated mouths. So they're real life animals, mm -hmm. but, they're, but they're animated to be talking. I've seen those things before. Yeah, yes. okay, fine. It's directed by the guy who gave us 
the Smurf movies. Oh. Uh, also, uh, Scooby-Doo, Beverly Hills, Chihuahua. Uh, so the director has pedigree. Um Starry voice cast, uh, you know, Stanley Tucci. And uh, Max, who is uh, ludicrous, is a police dog, a uh, Rottweiler, who seems to bust cases on his own, as far as we can tell. And through really complex and, frankly, not really that interesting shenanigans, ends up being teamed up with an FBI agent, played by Will Arnett, to go undercover and infiltrate an animal smuggling ring um, that is uh, that has stolen a panda. And in order to infiltrate this ring, they have to... You're losing interest already, aren't you? Yeah, I was you? just watching the cricket. Okay. They've got to take part in a dog show... That's going on in Las Vegas. That that so they're You're making this deliberately. And confusing. then right, they're in a car, and the the gag is that Max likes rap, but the FBI agent likes Elvis. Can you imagine the hilarity that will ensue when they're in the car together? Viva Las Vegas. I give props to hip hop, so hip hop hooray! Viva Las Vegas. Oh, hey, oh. stop, Max, stop it! It's a really, really lame, limp movie that, you know, isn't funny and does make a joke about why it is that nobody makes talking dog movies anymore and then proceeds to demonstrate why nobody makes talking dog movies anymore. It's in cinemas. I don't expect it will be there very long. I just want to mention one other passion of yours, which is referred to, I think, in the opening line uh, of the movie where uh, Chris Pine, who is the father, who is about to disappear, says to his daughter, and she's trying on dark glasses, uh, do you want to be Bono or Van Halen? (laughs) Yes, and she says Bono. And then we move on, but she's got the dark glasses, and you're a huge U2 fan. I am. (laughs) And and Mark, who's the critic on the show, can't stand U2. No, Mark, what is wrong with you? Okay, so now tell me what, tell him uh, why it's so important to you and why you put that little... Uh, reference right at the start of your film. Well, I thought it was important to show that different kinds of people like different kinds of music. I remember there was an early review. Like I say, I don't lean into them, but this one kind of irked me. An early review, um, I think it was out of the LA Times or something, uh, where they couldn't believe. My first film was called I Will Follow, based on a U2 song. And they thought it was unrealistic that I would name my film that um, uh, because I knew nothing about U2. Not knowing that as a black girl from Compton, which is the inner city in America, in the United States, um, on the West Coast, um, that I'd been to 27 U2 concerts. It gets into this whole idea of who can like what, who can love what, and that art can't can't be embraced by, that art is segregated. That really irks me. So um, I am a big U2 fan. I love Bono. I would choose his glasses any day over anyone else. I don't care, Mark. You were wrong. U2 is fantastic. Boom. Ava DuVernay, director of A Wrinkle in Time, ending that section of our Kermit and Mayo Best of 2018. Just half an hour of highlights to go, including Black Panther, Phantom Thread and The Nun. Plus Lupita Nyong'o, Sasha Ronan and Margot Robbie after the latest news on 5 Live. Welcome back. It's Mark and Simon with our Best of 2018 here on BBC Radio 5 Live. In our final half hour, Black Panther, Lupita Nyong'o, Sasha Ronan, Phantom Thread and Margot Robbie. But let's start... Intriguingly, with Mark on the Nun. 
or just mark on the, the nun. nun. They travel to this remote convent where a nun has mysteriously hanged herself because the convent is actually built in a castle, which was built by a baron who had a satanic incarnation, which is now being kept at bay by the power of prayer. Ooh. Now, I, I've actually, you know, some of the Conjuring films are better than others, and uh, I went with uh, Child 2, who, who is very, very sort of big into, you know, what's good and what's bad about the Conjuring cinematic universe. And I said to him, Do you, you know, you want to come see The Nunjuring? He said, I, 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 absolutely. And um, How so did he get into horror films? That's a weird I thing. I've got no idea. And it absolutely, it genuinely wasn't to do with me. I blame the parents. Anyway, so I sat there watching the film, which is shot in a colour scheme that is so boring, it makes the plot look slightly interesting. Can it I, is, sorry to interrupt. Can I ask, what's a bo- boring colour scheme? Like grey, brown, more grey, bit of beige. You keep wanting something madly violent to happen okay. so that at least the red will, will, will summon. But, I mean, it's... Uh, it, it looked really. It looked like it was being projected through a 3D lens with 70% light loss. And in fact, funnily enough, a couple of other people on Twitter have said, "Did when you saw it, did it look really murky?" And said, yes, it did. And it would have been more bothering if I'd actually cared about the film, which I didn't at all. It was really, really dull. Now, in the trailer, there is a jump scare. In the trailer, there is a jump scare. There is a character, and none appears behind, or the character looks round, or the, the character, and then none appears behind, or the character looks round, and then and then suddenly from out the side none comes you didn't you know it, it, quite it, it is the film's basis is quite quite none quite 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 none quite quite what's none the, but what's the nun do well the nun basically does a marilyn manson impression um and goes woo none but that's not and skin. no it's i mean genuinely but what, but what's she doing there this nun well it's, uh, it's evil need bad evil but nuns and, uh, don't do evil do no, no 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 but satanic nun a satanic, satanic nun. yeah absolutely and um so anyway i was going to play you a clip of the film but it is literally quite quite none and so uh, simon has put together this instead which is a a clip of a, a compilation clip of nuns in the movies with a bit of the nun here we go quite quite none i know what you're up to you and Reverend Mother. She brought you here to replace me. I had a series of visions when I was younger. Out with the old. I saw none. She was actually born from an act of the most revolting cruelty. Or did my visions reach the church? And I was asked to accompany a priest to an abbey in Romania. It's spectacles tested the bullet. It is a long history. Fuck. She climbs a tree and scrapes her knee. Her dress has got a tear. She waltzes on her way to mass and whistles on the stair. And underneath her whimper, she has curls in her hair. The Nun, Rated R. the darkest chapter in the Conjuring universe. Experience it in IMAX. You see, that is what our top production team spend their time doing. That was very good. And that was more entertaining than anything. I was, I was literally, there, there was one moment in The Nun, in which I... Because up until now, the movies have had a lot of the kind of quite, quite bang thing. And if you do the quite, quite bang loud enough, of course you jump because it's quite, quite, quite bang. But when it comes to quite, quite none, it's not scary. But there was one moment when I did jolt, which was that my head lolled forward because I was starting to fall asleep. When, I, you, say, when you say lolled forward, do you mean lol as in the current use of the word lol? No, I mean lol as in the old-fashioned use of oh, lol. Okay. Right. So then I thought, okay, I've paid to see this because I went to see it in a cinema with a paying audience. I have to say, all of whom felt as uninspired by it as I did... Um, all seven of them. And so whilst I was watching it, I just thought I have to keep myself awake. 
by thinking of none puns. So, how many stars? None. How many scares? None. How many people will see it? None. What's the plot like? Utter nonsense. Good. What did the cast remind me of? The nonth configuration. Which episode is it? It's 5432 None. That's right. It's episode None, The Phantom Menace. Who's the boogie man? Marilyn Nunson. How much more boring could it be? None more boring. Which record label is the soundtrack on? None such. Which weapons should they be using? None chucks. That was my favourite. What would it be called if they were all very small? Numbelina. How do you like it? I'm not having none of it. What does it all mean? We're none the wiser. And how many more of these should they make? None. That is funnier and more scary and more interesting than anything in the film. I thank you very much. I think this is Paul Thomas Anderson's best film since Punch Drunk Love. And you know how much I love Punch Drunk Love. I think this is now on a par with it and I'm teetering on the edge of whether or not this is actually my favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film whether it's dislodged Punch Drunk Love which I have loved for a long time and I, in a way I won't know until I've let it settle but I've now seen Phantom Thread as I said four times and every time I see it I see more in it what I love about it is Punch Drunk Love was a film which referred very often to uh, to Popeye you know they had that use of that he needs me he needs me he needs me you know which is referring specifically to the film adaptation of Popeye with Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall yep okay okay this is absolutely laced through with threads from fairy tales so there is curse of there is talk of curses and superstition the superstition of the wedding dress that he says very early on when he was making the wedding dress his nanny wouldn't help him do it because there were all these superstitions that if you touch a wedding dress, you won't get married. And in the end, he said his sister uh, helped him to do it. And Alma says, and, and what happened to her? Did she get married? And he says, no. And then we learn that one of the things that he's been doing since an early age is stitching things into the dresses that he makes. He says you can hide things in the lining of garments, messages, coins, little things. And one of the messages that he puts into the lining of a garment is never cursed. He talks at one point about the house of Woodcock being uh, being a dead house, somehow being cursed. So this thing about curses recurs time and time again. There are allusions to Bluebeard and to the Brothers Grimm. There are journeys off into forests where mushrooms, strange mushrooms grow and are harvested by a heroine who has you know, more than a touch of the princess in the tower or Little Red Riding Hood or you know Hansel and Gretel or any of those stories. The camera, which incidentally the film doesn't have a credited director of photography um, because the people that, that Paul Thomas Anderson usually works with weren't available. A lot of people have said that he's the cinematographer. He's quite clear he's not the cinematographer. He was basically marshalling a camera crew, working with the people that he's you know worked with, you know grips and camera operators and all that sort of stuff. And as a team, they worked to create this cinematography. But the camera circles around these staircases that give you the impression of an ivory tower and then at other times take you out into these strange forests. You know, the Beauty and the Beast analogy is there. And then beneath it all, you have this wonderful score by Johnny Greenwood, which invokes, you know, Passionate Friends or Brief Encounter, throwing back to those period pieces, recorded very specifically in a way to make it sound, I mean, you know, muted piano and then these soaring romantic strings, surging cyclical themes, all of which absolutely hark back to a to a bygone age which again put you in that thing of you know the magic of cinema those those classic influences but also i think evoke fairy tales something mythical something magical and so therefore so you have on the surface a film which is about a really prickly difficult man who is defined by his rituals who is absolutely intolerant and intolerable 
And then you have this other layer underneath, which is that it's referring to all these other movies, which I love anyway. And then more sort of importantly than that, the whole thing has a fairy tale charm, which every time I've seen it has been more. I mean, the first time I saw it, I noticed it somewhat. By the fourth time, it just seemed to me that it was it was being you know declared from the rooftops. And on top of all that, it's really funny. And it's one of the things which it's hard to understand how it can be as funny as it is. Partly it's funny because the dialogue is, you know, paper cut sharp. And the the way in which it's delivered by the cast, and the cast are brilliant. I mean, it's a really, really, you know, great central cast. These lines are delivered with that kind of, you know, lemon juice sort of bite, that zing. Leslie Manville, brilliant, at one point she says, I don't want to hear it because it hurts my ears. The very fact that the Black Panther was born of the civil rights movement and came into being then just speaks of it's a, the radical nature of it is is in its very um, origins, you know, and uh, Marvel honored that and has allowed for this particular part of the universe to stand on its own, you know, have its own rules and its own identity. So I think Marvel does a really good job of that with all its his superheroes each one fills a different you know a different um almost almost a different genre within mm. the <laughs> superhero yeah. uh genre and uh yeah it's uh it's a really a remarkable thing because it does have that kind of reach i mean marvel is appealing to the masses and so the fact that this story gets to go around the globe and that it's made of such strong and deep stuff i mean it's amazing it's amazing it's it's what you dream to be a part of something that is popular but also extremely meaningful. There aren't many times I think you go to a movie and sit there thinking, actually, I don't think I've seen this before. It does really feel like a moment. It does feel like a landmark film. Did it feel like that when you were making it or or were you too engrossed and too hopeful for the future? Well, you know, when you're making a film, you can't really think about... How it's gonna, what what role it's gonna play in the bigger world? You can think about that before you start, and even after. But it's kind of dangerous to think about that as you work because when you're working, my responsibility is to advocate for Nakia, you know. And so that was my focus. I know Ryan will say the same thing. You have to just totally deafen yourself to all the pressures and all the meaning that it could have in the larger world and just tell the story frame by frame. Uh, but, you know, there were definitely moments when I was just overcome with just how rare and special the moment that what we were making was. And one of those moments was we were filming The Warrior Falls, The Coronation of the King, and we were, uh, it was the main cast and a whole lot of extras, hundreds of extras on this cliff of the waterfalls. And uh, it was between takes and we were just waiting around. And the drummers in the scene started just drumming to to bide the time. Mm. And they were drumming to Snoop Doggy Dogg's Drop It Like It's Hot. And before you know it, everybody was riffing with them and we were all <laughs> singing along and we all knew it. And I looked around and I realized 
this is a film about pan-Africanism and it's being made by pan-Africans, you know. When the pimp's in the crib, ma, drop it like it's hot, drop it like it's hot, drop it like it's hot. When the pigs try to get at you, park it like it's hot, park it like it's hot, park it like it's hot. You get in the figure the attitude, pop it like it's hot, pop it like it's hot, pop it like it's hot. I got the rollie on my arm and I'm pouring Chandon and I'm over best weed cause I got it going on. The film is so diverse in terms of the, the, the African cast. We had... People from South Africa and Zimbabwe, Uganda, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, Germany, the UK, America, Canada, Trinidad and Tobago, wow. Jamaica. And that was just the cast, you know, and I don't know whether that was by design, but, you know, the fact that it took a Pan-African cast to tell a Pan-African story, I mean, it's just unprecedented and I just got goosebumps in that moment and we were all united by Black Panther but also by Snoop Doggy Dog <laughs> you know the yeah. power of popular culture you know that's it you know that we can share in that experience and Black Panther offers another opportunity for all of us to gut into the cinema and experience this mythology together and it's a reconditioning of the subconscious mind and that is where real change happens tell me something what do you know about Wakanda? Superhero movies have in the past, it is true, you know, traditionally skewed male. And Lupita Nyong'o was talking about this society as something in which everyone is allowed to thrive. And there is definitely, you know, gender equality. And there is absolutely that all the way through the film. You know, the special forces, you know, all female special forces are kind of they're smarter sharper, tougher than their male adversaries. And the film is really behind celebrating those strengths. And then, you know, you, when you've got this sort of fairly extraordinary uh, ensemble cast, you have things like in all the key roles, you have Angela Bassett. And, you know, whereas, you know, Superman had mumbling Marlon Brando briefly in the old Superman. Here you've got, you know, Forrest Whitaker being really sort of quite mesmerising. Then you have this soundtrack. Uh, Ludwig Göransson apparently went to Sonegal in South Africa to record with local musicians. As you know, um, Kendrick Lamar produced the curated soundtrack. But the sound of the film is every bit as, you know, immersive as the look of it, again, you do feel like you're actually in this world. You feel like you're, you're like you're walking around in it, and that's often been the problem. That when you're in the sort of superhero world, you can feel like everything is very disconnected. The amount of superhero movies we've seen, which just end up with a huge amount of buildings falling down and entire areas being, and you don't feel any connection. So the most important thing, quite apart from what you talked about in great depth and in that interview, which is absolutely right, is that this is, you know, there is an important cultural moment happening with the existence of this film. But the film has to work as a film. It has to, it stands or falls on whether or not it actually works as a film. And it does. And the key reason that it does is that you know and you care about the characters. Now, there is a there is always a thing with 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 these films is that as you move towards the sort of later acts as they move towards battles the battles are always the point at which i become slightly disconnected because what i'm really interested in is characters i'm not that interested in spectacle and it is true that that is a, a trait that has to be sort of followed through the movies in this final sort of act when various characters are battling each other i knew at every moment who everyone was. It's an amazing achievement, really. What everyone was doing, why they were doing it, who they were doing it with or against or for or in spite of. 
And all those things were happening. And my my emotional engagement was, was, you know, was completely connected with it. So I thought that it was I thought it was a really good standalone piece. I thought the ensemble cast, you could feel that everybody felt like they were making something they were really proud of. Um, I think it looks great. I think it sounds great. I think it's really good fun. And I do want to go and see it again. And I will go and see it again uh, over half term. And I think that what's what's really important is that in that interview, you know, you're talking about the there is definitely a kind of weight of cultural moment on it. And a, a less well-made film could have buckled under that pressure because, you know, because it's, it's because it is you know it's the kind of film that was on the news last night and it, it's become a news item it's become a news story and as you probably know in the run-up to the film there was this, this nonsense online with you know facebook groups being formed in order to vote it down on rotten tomatoes because certain fanboys were annoyed about the way disney had done you know just that kind of it's the it's a kind of film that inspires you know sort of madness around it and in the end, the thing that will make it work or not work is, is it a good film? Are you involved with it? Do you care about the characters? Can you understand what they're doing? And does it follow through? And the answer is yes. He set eyes on me for the first time. Hello. Hello. And I saw a man who wasn't wearing a jacket. Nonsense. Oh, yes. What is the significance of the beach? Because it's called On Chesil Beach. They have this very sort of awkward, in some ways horrific encounter back in the bedroom of the hotel where they're going to spend their honeymoon. And let's just say things don't go according to plan on the wedding night. Florence runs out of the room and escapes onto the beach. And a few minutes later, Edward, her now husband, follows her. And they have this argument. The way the beach is, it's sort of... There's like a stony part of the beach that juts out into the sea and it's surrounded on three sides by water. So there's that whole idea of just feeling completely isolated and like there's no way out. And the only way to escape the beach that they've ended up on is to is to figure out this problem that they have, you know. You weren't tempted to help yourself to pebbles. I was. I was so tempted. But you did. Did I? No, I did not take one. Because Ian, Ian McEwen got into a lot of <laughs> no, trouble for saying that he'd, he'd I know he did. Some. But he wrote a book about it. I know. He's brought can... so much tourism to Chessel Beach. I know he's brought tourism. But you, Just give him a pebble, but guys. You, but you can't take a step. Do you think it's fair to say that Florence and Edward would have had a much better time of it now? I mean, 1962 feels like a horrible year, really. For them it was, yes. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Ian has made the point as well that there were a lot of very liberal, very sort of outspoken people in 1962 too, but this couple were not two of those people and i think that still exists now i think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people in general that don't feel encouraged to speak openly about sex and have a healthy conversation about it whether it's with their children or their friends or their partner um so i think it's still an issue but yeah i would hope that you know even people have compared the character a little bit to ladybird who also has a very awkward first sexual encounter, but she's very open about how mm. she feels about it. So, yeah, it's definitely a different time. You mentioned how attracted you are to playing complicated characters. I wonder whether, and this is a very another very sophisticated screenplay that you're working with, was there, a, was there ever a point where you thought, I am not going to play 
the girlfriend. I'm not going to play the daughter. I'm not. Yeah. I'm just not going to do that. Or was it less planned than that? That's always been very deliberate for me. Like when it's come to actually choosing a role, I've never set out to go for a certain thing. I sort of am a little bit more now, but what, when I was growing up, it was always just whatever came to me. If I had a response to it, then it was right. But one of the things that was a deliberate choice was that I, I didn't want to be the sister or the girlfriend or the girl next door or anything like that. I wanted to play characters that were people and they were interesting. And to be honest, you, you know, even if it was a supporting role, it's less about it being lead versus supporting, but just one that's well written. And I found that when I was growing up, more so in my teens, from the age of like 16 to 20, it was very, very difficult to find a female role that had some grit to it and had something to sink your teeth into. And so with the result, I, I just didn't work as much. I was very lucky to be in things like Grand Budapest Hotel and stuff, but I didn't do as much because I... I was very lucky that like I didn't need to pay rent and I didn't need to look after a family or anything. I could afford myself sure. the time to wait. So. Okay, how do I get a fair shot here? Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? This is how it's done. Some of these girls have paid their dues. I don't give a I outskated him today. We also judge on presentation. Well, you know what? If you can come up with $5,000 for a costume for me, then I won't have to make one. Till then, just stay out of my face. Maybe you're just not as good as you think. Maybe you should pick another sport. Oh my. And that's a clip from I, Tonya. It stars Margot Robbie. Margot, it's very nice to see you again. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Well, it's, it, and so soon after a Goodbye Christopher Robin, yeah. when you came in with, with Donald Gleeson, I have to say it was you created quite a stir, uh, the two of you, because people kept on writing in for quite a few weeks afterwards saying that they'd been listening to the show and they kept on seeing Donald Gleeson uh, you know, on train platforms. And it was like... <laughs> Like you were, yeah, and then, so then we got this uh, email from a guy called Joe who says, while waiting for a flight from Dallas to New York early on a Saturday morning, uh, I was listening to your podcast. I've been saving it up. And as I boarded, your interview with Donald Gleason and Margot Robbie began. Uh, headphones in, I put my bag in the overhead locker while two women grasping Australian passports waited patiently to get to their seats. As the three of us sat down, I thought to myself it was amusing that they put the only three Commonwealth citizens all next to each other at the front of the plane. <laughs> this thought was replaced with near paralysing shock, however, when I realised that the second Australian woman was none other than Margot Robbie, who I was listening to on the podcast oh at that very moment. It was like surreal ventriloquism, listening to her voice without her lips actually moving. What an opportunity, I thought, to talk to Margot about everything. But I did what any devoted fan of your show would do. I sat there in silence for the entire flight, looking straight forward. So, there you go. So he respected oh, your space. So kind of him. I actually wish he had uh, said hello or said something. Well, and then, then, and then we got this from uh, Peter Noble, who's been on China Southern Airlines, where they were showing goodbye Christopher Robin. I just want to show you mm. how they've spelt, well, they got your name wrong, how they spelt <laughs> Donald Gleeson abdominal gleason oh my gosh that is so good <laughs> i'll have to show donald that that's so funny you just call him abdominal 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 anyway all of which is, i just wanted to tell you so that's the preamble that's happened since you were on the show last it's all very exciting also happened 
since you're on the show last uh, is you have a Best Actress nomination yes. for the Oscar. So that must be dominating your thoughts quite a lot for this movie. It's very, yeah, that's so bizarre. Very, very unexpected and exciting. Why is it unexpected? Well, you know, because I lived through doing our film, knowing it was how small it was, how quickly we shot. You know, it's very much an indie film. To be up against films like The Post or something like that, it just seems crazy that we're even in the conversation. Margot Robbie ending our best of 2018, which has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Thanks for listening. If you missed any of it, you can listen again and get the podcast via the BBC Sounds app. BBC Radio 5 Live.